Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business show. I'm your host, Kevin Price, talking to you about you and your business. Is your business to know about the law and how it's affecting every aspect of your life? Is your business to know about what's happening that's really important in the media front, particularly as it relates to the law? And so that's why I'm really excited about uh, John O'Connor joining our uh, media team here. Uh, he'll be doing uh, reoccurring commentaries on business, the law, the political front, and the media. And we're delighted to have him join us. Uh, he's distinguished in uh, the legal profession. Uh, he is an experienced trial lawyer practicing law in San Francisco since the early 70s. And he has tried cases in state and federal courts throughout the country. He served as an assistant U.S. attorney in Northern California, representing the United States in both criminal and civil cases. But he may be best known for his work as the attorney of Mark Felt, whom most of you know as Deep Throat in the uh, Watergate uh, situation. And uh, he became very familiar with the role of the Washington Post in Watergate in his representation of Mark Felt. And so uh, he brings a lot of experience. He also wrote briefs regarding uh, Patty Hearst, the United States versus Patty Hearst, and really had himself involved in some of the biggest lawsuits of the uh, 20th century, representing the uh, federal government uh, in the vast majority of those cases. So we're delighted to have him. He's going to be bringing his interesting insights uh, every other week here on the Price of Business show. You can learn more about him and his work at postgatebook.com. That's postgatebook.com. And that's the name of uh, the, the book that uh, he talks about most often. It relates to media, Postgate. And again, that's postgatebook.com. All right, with that, John O'Connor. Thanks, Kevin. The Price of Business has asked me to talk about the rhetoric of the midterm elections. As we are digesting the results of a very hotly and tightly contested election throughout the country, we might reflect upon the two main types of thinking and related rhetoric that characterize this election. Although the issues of climate change, inflation, abortion, and energy independence may seem distinctively modern, from a larger perspective, these elections pitted two long-existing contrasting styles of thinking against one another. These differences go back to the beginning of modern democracies in the late 18th century, as the Western world saw the emergence of a democratic France and a democratic United States, the first of their ilk, at least since the early Roman Empire. The intellectual underpinnings of the French Revolution were supplied by the philosophy of the brilliant Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau saw man's natural state as that of a noble savage, only harmed by the strictures of society's bonds. Man was born free, he said, but everywhere in chains. Rousseau, we should add, had no commercial or professional experience in the real world. Rousseau proposed that citizens will be free and happy if they just do what is good for them, which he called the general will of society, as determined, however, not by the common citizens, but by wise men. However, if an individual did not conform his conduct to the general will, according to Rousseau, he should be, and I quote, forced to be free, unquote. So from Rousseau, we have a philosophy that human nature is perfectible, but humans must be coerced by society if they do not wish to get with the program. French citizens ignored the coercive aspect of Rousseau's philosophy and concentrated on the sunny tropes of liberty, fraternity, and egality, all romantically appealing to the normal French citizenry 
later inspiring the giddy, exciting storming of the Bastille. On the other hand, Anglo-Irish philosopher and statesman Edmund Burke warned as the French Revolution began with happy exaltation that eventually an undisciplined French society would devolve into bloody violence and become subject to a takeover by a dictator. Over the next years, as the celebration waned, France, in fact, got bloodier and bloodier as thousands of heads were chopped by the guillotine. Eventually, this weakened society was taken over by dictator Napoleon Bonaparte. A rudderless democracy, this epoch showed, doesn't enhance human freedom, but endangers it along with producing economic pain. In America's founding days, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and their anti-federalists, or Democratic Republicans, to be distinguished from Latter-day Republicans, believed fervently in the French Revolution, even as the evidence of the brutality of the guillotine mounted. They spoke loftily of the democracy of the common man while owning hundreds of slaves as the source of their wealth, who authored, respectively, the soaring words of the Declaration of Independence and the Enduring Constitution. But while both harbored idealistic views, neither had experience in the world of commerce, but were instead offspring of wealthy plantation owners who rhapsodized about a lovely agrarian society without a strong military or credit and banking system. Luckily for America, General George Washington was so popular he became our first president. He was a man of experience and common sense, no intellectual. Like his top aide and advisor, young Alexander Hamilton, he shared a view of human nature which sought, perhaps paradoxically, to enhance freedom by recognizing human limitations and keeping control of society through sound financial and banking practices and strong police and military, all of which enhanced commerce and wealth. Reasonable taxation and an effective military were opposed by Jefferson and Madison as being too much like the British monarchy they despised. By the time the Democratic-Republican Jefferson took office in 1800, the country's credit was strong, society was gaining wealth, and Federalist John Adams had brokered a peace treaty with Napoleon's France. Jefferson took pains to depict himself as a common man while living in private a life of extreme luxury, benefiting, as we have said, by slave labor. His image as a man of freedom allowed him to paint Hamilton and Adams as enemies of the common man, as closet monarchists. This brilliant image-making kept his party in power for decades to come. Washington, Hamilton, and Adams made the American common man wealthy, but were pictured, at least as to Hamilton and Adams, as the common man's enemy. Because in the 1800 election there was no distinction between a vote for president and vice president, Jefferson tied with his presumptive vice president nominee Aaron Burr. To get Federalists supporting Congress for the tie-breaking vote, Jefferson agreed to keep intact the Federalist system. However, because Jefferson and Madison did not believe in a federal military, by the time Madison was president, he was forced to shamefully flee Washington, D.C. as the English burned the White House in the unnecessary War of 1812. The economy was saved by Henry Clay's American system of tariffs supporting infrastructure. Before we leave this historical background, we note that Hamilton and Madison were able to get support for the Constitution only by brilliant newspaper pieces called the Federalist Papers, read by the voting populace. So their success came from publishing in a wide open media to an engaged literate citizenry. Now to the present. These two broad political philosophies and their related rhetoric squared off once more in the 2022 midterm elections. The commercial side of the election, inhabited by Republicans, could argue strongly that their policies led to the prosperity of a roaring stock market, high wages, and low interest rates. 
Abundant surplus oil and natural gas kept pump prices low, as well as other items dependent upon low energy prices, such as airline travel, commercial transportation, food requiring fossil fuel, fertilizer, steel requiring coked coal, and just about every mainstream product. Widespread prosperity propelled tech companies to record earnings. Our streets were relatively safe, at least until the 2020 riots, and our national enemies made little in the way of overt hostile maneuvers. Yet Donald Trump lost the 2020 presidential election, and the House and Senate were confirmed to be solidly Democratic. Why? Successor President Joe Biden immediately ceased new oil and gas drilling on federal property, deliberately shrinking fossil fuel production into a deficit mode. Now pump prices soared as we begged other countries for supply. Prices of all of the goods rose, as should be expected, in an economy, relying in all commercial sectors on fossil fuels. Inflation cut into the paychecks of the common man. Our national security posture was weakened as we shamefully pulled out of Afghanistan, leading billions in valuable equipment and leaving the country vulnerable to Chinese hegemony. Putin, with impunity, invaded Ukraine after fearing to do so for the previous four years. Chinese planes and ships encircled Taiwan, a valuable source of computer chips. Crime ran rapid along with border invasions and fentanyl importation. So in the midterm elections, Republicans were sure to sweep into strong legislative power, correct? Well, not exactly. The country, as in 1800, was divided between the common-sense commercial realists and those who espouse lofty rhetoric in the face of the problems we've outlined. Donald Trump, of course, was depicted by the media as an undemocratic authoritarian white supremacist. Based upon that image, his hand-picked candidates suffered by association, especially in purple states and purple areas of other states. Many voters, unschooled or uncaring about commercial markets, valued lofty ideals about uncertain and remote climate change fears, as well as abortion. Finally, the Democratic forces ably, perhaps unfairly, depicted all Trump followers as dangerous to democracy, much as Jefferson so depicted Hamilton and Adams in 1800. In 1800, Thomas Jefferson barely beat John Adams because the Democratic Republicans, through Aaron Burr, were more clever in choosing New York state electors, while Alexander Hamilton was less adroit at picking attractive candidates. This might be analogized to Trump's pick of various senatorial candidates, as well as gubernatorial. In 1800, New York went for Jefferson in spite of his opponent's solid record of financial and national security success. In this election, likewise, lofty rhetoric reminiscent of the French Revolution helped the Democrats, while Democrats, as in 1800, painted their opponents as out-of-touch authoritarians. The result, as in 1800, was for all practical purposes a draw. To be sure, the rhetoric of the Democrats in 2022 could have been criticized by the media, which instead gave them covering fire. As in 1800, a good portion of the population was economically illiterate while attracted to idealistic rhetoric. These voters exemplified what Winston Churchill referenced when he said, quote, the best argument against democracy is a 10-minute conversation with the average voter. But to put a positive spin on the electorate, each side, in its own way, sought moderate conservative governance. Democratic swing voters were convinced that Republican candidates were too extreme, a form of moderate conservative rhetoric. Conservatives were shocked that the electorate did not recognize prior conservative success contrasted with present liberal progressive failure. But in swing states, many voters, concerned about climate change and abortion, and worried about extremists on the Republican side, approximately half of the electorate differed on the same grounds that Jefferson and Madison differed with Hamilton and Adams in 1800. What I'm saying is that the more things change, the more they stay the same.